0: good evening our first reading is from Psalm 25 of David in you Lord my God I put my trust I trust in you do not let me be put to shame nor let my enemies triumph over me no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause show me your ways Lord Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Now, second reading comes from Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. But to you you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, I'm going to uh, say some fairly controversial things uh, based on... Let me just make this microphone work. That's fine. Uh, based on this uh, passage uh, tonight, Um, but I I think it's um, probably not controversial uh, to begin uh, by saying that uh, this teacher is among the most influential teachers that have ever existed. I doubt even skeptical people would disagree with that, uh, especially as some of his teachings many, in fact, have become sort of proverbial in the English language and not just English. Um, so you think of statements like salt of the earth, comes from Jesus, love thy neighbour, do to others as you'd have them do to you, the good Samaritan, uh, prodigal son, blind leading the blind, judge not lest you be judged, wolf in sheep's clothing, cast the first stone, eat, drink and be merry, sign of the times, and go the extra mile. All of these come from uh, Jesus and have entered into our language as proverbs that people use without even acknowledging uh, where they come from. I met a politician, uh, who shall remain nameless, uh, a few years ago, who um, told me that he really loves to live by the motto That was um, John F. Kennedy's uh, famous motto, to whom much is given, much is required. And he had no idea it originally came from Jesus, from Luke chapter 12. He was delighted, to his credit, to learn that it was even older than the great JFK. Uh, Albert Einstein, who was no fan of formal religion, he thought religion was um, dodgy, Uh, He thought atheism was just as dodgy, uh, but he he was neither a fan of religion nor an atheist, but he did have a lot of time for Jesus. And on one occasion, he uh, remarked, I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. No one can deny the fact that Jesus existed, nor that his sayings are beautiful. But I think we can do better than saying, he said some beautiful things. Uh, Back in 2013, two information scientists, Skiena and Ward, neither of whom is a Christian, Uh, uh, Skiena is in fact an ardent atheist, uh, did a study where um, through an algorithm they had developed, they were trying to discern who is the most influential figure in history. They had a thousand historical figures from Aristotle in the ancient Greek world through to Einstein. And uh, to their own surprise, their algorithm said Jesus was the most influential figure. It was funny watching them in interviews, being really coy about this result, but it was just the maths they they explained. I think we can do even better than that. You may not know uh, the name Samuel Moyne, but he's Professor of uh, Law and History at Yale University, and uh, one of the top flight scholars on human rights. And he is not a Christian, openly not a Christian. Um, But he argues that it was really Jesus that gave Western culture its value of human equality and then ultimately uh, political human rights. I don't doubt that that Jesus Christ in particular um, brought about a revolution um, in thinking of people as uh, as equal in the sight of God. Later, this idea of moral equality became an ideal of political equality, and there's no doubt that that's caused the world to change drastically. So it's uncontroversial to say Jesus was a famous teacher who's influenced our world in dramatic ways. But there are, it seems to me, two mistakes people make in thinking about Jesus the teacher. And I wanna talk about both of them. One is a mistake made by society at large, the other is a mistake made by the church, if you don't mind my saying so. Mistake number one is to see Jesus as only a teacher, right? The only acceptable Jesus is that He said beautiful things, told people to be nice to each other, full stop. This is very common in Aussie culture, we are creeped out by the healings of Jesus and by the claim that He's Lord and Saviour and all that spooky stuff, but teacher is fine. I was interviewed on Triple J some years ago, when one of my books on Jesus came out, and Triple J, you may know, is not renowned for being very positive toward Christianity, so I was very nervous going into this. But actually, the interview went fine, and then they said they're gonna take calls, live calls into the, into, into the show, and then I was very nervous. But to my delight, um, they must have had 10 callers who had positive things to say about Jesus. They were not fans of the church, But they all loved aspects of Jesus, and it all focused on his teaching. The way he taught love, peace, justice, the way he stuck it up the religious leaders, and and so on. Jesus, the teacher. Pretty much only the teacher. This idea, as common as it is today, really has an origin in the 19th century. You may have never heard of Ernest Renan. This is one of the most successful books on any subject written in the 19th century. His life of Jesus uh, basically said we need to get rid of the mystical Jesus who's Lord and died for sins and did miracles and just focus on the Galilean wise man. It was translated into multiple languages, had a huge influence and even if you've never heard the name, many of us have been influenced by this idea of Jesus simply as teacher. Historians today, even the very non-Christian or atheistic experts on the life of Jesus, would agree that um, Renan is a classic example of a mistake that's very easy to, uh, to make um, in connection with Jesus and that is to project our own preferences onto Him. Renan was a 19th century French humanist and he turned Jesus into a 1st century Galilean humanist. It was really just Renan looking in the mirror. But there is a second mistake, and it's one made by the church, and it's a response to the first. Um, some church folk are so worried that the world thinks Jesus is just a teacher, that, that, that we downplay the role of Jesus as teacher and just amplify Him being Saviour and Lord. And teaching, oh, you know, there's that little bit of teaching early in the Gospels, but it's really about His death and resurrection, Him being the Saviour and the Lord. And I admit, when I first went into theological college in New Testament 101, um, we had this lesson where they uh, unpacked the the statistics where 20% of the Gospels, that's the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four biographies of Jesus we know were written in the first century, 20% of their material focuses on the three days of Jesus' trial, death, and resurrection. And the point was, wow, 20% on three days, that tells you where your focus should be. And I was so impressed with it, until I realized that means 80% is about all the other stuff. Doesn't it? And most of the other stuff is Jesus' teaching. Sure, Jesus was more than a teacher. But he really was a remarkable teacher. It's a topic of detailed research today. Every one of these hundred or so recent books on the historical Jesus has a huge section on how Jesus taught, what he taught, and so on. And this is because Jesus' teacher is in all of our sources, all of our ancient sources, including the non-Christian ones, like this is Josephus, first century, a Jewish aristocrat, not a Christian, but nonetheless writes, in the first century, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, he's casting him as like a philosopher, I guess, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. Naturally, our gospel sources bring even greater clarity Uh, to this. Um, Everywhere in our Gospels, we hear and read Jesus' teaching, but on occasion, Jesus said that's the main thing he does. So, when he was arrested, he said to the people arresting him, hang on, every day I sat here in the temple teaching and you didn't come and arrest me. It was his daily activity. If we were transported back in time and followed Jesus for his three years of public ministry, most of the time would be spent listening to his teaching. Teacher is also the title people usually addressed him as. You know, it's more, uh, modern Christians like to call him Lord and Saviour and so on, but people in the day, including his own disciples, instinctively just called him teacher. You would think, you know, if you were in a prayer meeting today, right, and, and, and one, of the, one of the people in your prayer meeting, you know, closed their eyes and went, Oh, dear teacher, dear teacher, please. You know, you'd think, Wait, what a creepy thing to call Jesus. But everywhere in the Gospels, 30 times in the Gospels, people address him as teacher. My favourite example is when he's in a big storm in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and his disciples are freaking out and they wake him up because, you know, he can fall asleep in a storm and all that, but the disciples woke him up and said to him, Look at that teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, think of all the things that might be more appropriate at that point Lord, Savior, even Captain. But, teacher, it was so inbuilt their relationship with him was one of student to teacher that even in that moment, their first thought was, You are our teacher. So, perhaps. The church and society have something to teach each other. The church can remind the public that Jesus was more than a teacher, and the public can remind the church he really was a brilliant teacher. Okay, they are the mistakes that we can often make with our topic. Let me now try and do the impossible. Okay, that be all right just a few minutes on the impossible, I want to summarize the content of all of Jesus' teaching. That be alright? And um, although we could plumb the depths of this forever and ever, um, all historians agree that the kind of like the banner theme of Jesus' teaching was what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Now, I know that sounds like a puzzling phrase. Hang on, is that talking about like heaven going to the Kingdom? No. Ancient Jews, like Jesus, used this expression, Kingdom of God, about the day in history when God would prove himself king over this creation by overthrowing evil and replacing it with justice, by dispelling hate and bringing love, by establishing peace. That's the Kingdom of God. It's not about going to heaven when you die, it's more about heaven coming to earth. And Jesus referred to his teaching as about the kingdom. I mean, this is one of many examples. He often introduced things he would say by uh, saying, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? And then he'd go on and give a teaching about the kingdom. In this case, he says, it's like a mustard seed, tiny seed, which a man took and planted in his garden, it grew and became a tree, and the birds uh, perched in its branches. His, His idea is the kingdom will start almost imperceptibly and become a great big tree for everyone. Or think of the one prayer Jesus taught his students. We call it the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, and one of its principal requests is, right there, your kingdom come. If you have ever wished the Almighty would do something about the mess in our world, you have wished for what Jesus called the kingdom of God. You may not have called it that, but that's the core theme of his teaching. And it influences all the other themes. Um, I know we often associate Jesus with ethics you know, like peace and love and justice and all that, and that's true and right and proper, but Jesus connected all that ethical stuff to this kingdom idea. Here was the logic of Jesus, and you see it particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Because he thought ultimately justice would reign in the kingdom of God, disciples should get busy doing justice now. Because God's kingdom would bring peace, Christians should be busy doing peace. The kingdom will be about love, so Christians should be on about love now. And this brings me to the heart of Jesus' ethical teaching. Love. And so we arrive at our passage. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, do to others as you would have them do to you, famous golden rule love your enemies do good to them lend to them without expecting anything back then your reward will be great you will be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked be merciful just as your father is merciful i i honestly think these are the most sublime words ever spoken now sure that might be my christian bias but i put this as a challenge out to you can you think of any words more sublime in the, in the history of ideas? I've spent three decades reading Greek and Roman literature, the literature of the great religions. I know of nothing like this. Um, not everyone agrees with me. Um, Hugh McKay, Australia's um, probably most beloved social commentator, completely disagrees with what I've just said. Uh, He wrote this book called Beyond Belief in 2016, in which he argues we don't need religion for any of this kind of love ethic. We can have a society of love without religion. Now, I think that's a good debate to have, so I welcome a book like that. But along the way, he makes two striking statements about Jesus, and that piqued my interest. He said, one, Jesus' golden rule the, you know, do unto others as you have them do to you, is found in virtually all philosophies and religions, he assures us. And two, Jesus never told anyone what to believe in, he only spoke about how to treat each other. Okay, so let's look at these in turn. What about Jesus' golden rule? Is this found in all philosophies? Well, um, helpfully, Hugh McKay gives us an example to demonstrate that you find it in other philosophies. His example is Confucius, Analects, Book 15. Do not inflict on others what you yourself would not wish done to you. Sounds a lot like do unto others as you would have them do to you, right? Like the grammar is similar, there's a thing about you, there's a thing about them, okay? But is it the same? Is it the same? I want to say, Confucius's advice is excellent, and if we all just followed this, it'd be a much better world. If you didn't inflict on others what you wouldn't want done to you, it'd be very good. But I I mean no disrespect in saying, surely this is the silver rule, not the golden rule. Compare it with what Jesus actually said. Do to others as you would have them do to you, love. Do not do the bad thing to others that you wouldn't want done to yourself versus do the good thing to others that you would want done to yourself. I put it to you, these are worlds apart. This is the difference between deciding not to punch my enemy in the face because I follow Confucius and deciding to build my enemy a hospital because I follow Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus is the only one to have taught about love. No, the Jews in his context before him taught about love as a, as a central ethical principle. But Jesus intensified it, for sure. And great Jewish scholars often point this out. I had the great privilege years ago of interviewing Geza Vermesh, who is... Uh, was a professor of Jewish studies at Oxford University for 30 years, and he's actually the principal translator of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you've read the English translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Penguin edition is the most famous edition. He he, he did it, it's his work, but he's also written eight books on Jesus and tons of other academic um, things. He's not a Christian believer, and so I, I wanted to interview him about love in Judaism and how that related to Jesus' teaching of love. And when I arrived, um, he, he said to me, now, John, just to be clear, you realize, don't you, Jesus got his emphasis on love from Judaism. I said, yes, Professor Vimesh, yes, I, I understand that, I have read the Old Testament, I have read your books, I, I understand that, and that's what I want to talk to you about. And he, he stopped me and he said, but Jesus radicalized the Jewish tradition, so that love now was not just for neighbour but for leper, love for sinner, love for enemies. It was confronting and delightful to be reminded by the world's leading Jewish scholar of the unique contribution to this theme of love that comes from Jesus. But what about Hugh McKay's other claim? Um, that Jesus never told anyone what to believe in. He only spoke about how to treat each other. I mean, even if we leave aside all the times Jesus said you ought to believe in Him, well, let's just park those ones, um, this very passage we're looking at, this famous ethical passage, makes clear that love really only makes sense because of a belief in the love of God. So why does it make sense, according to Jesus, to love your enemies. Well, Jesus says, because that's what God's like with the ungrateful and the wicked. Why does it make sense to be merciful to the undeserving? Well, Jesus says, because that's exactly what the Father is like. See, here's the thing that's so important. Love, in the teaching of Jesus, isn't an arbitrary moral ethic. It isn't just like a... A social way for us all to get along. For Jesus, love is a reflection of ultimate reality. It reflects what God is like. And it goes even deeper than that for Jesus because, of course, his whole life story was about loving the undeserving right to his cross. He taught love of enemy but he took that all the way to his own death. Jesus taught that his death would be the means of the enemies of God being forgiven, if I am going to put it like that. See, Jesus did preach about judgment. That's the other thing when you pick up a gospel that's pretty confronting. He said, when the kingdom comes, everyone that's opposed to the kingdom will be judged. God will judge the world for its lack of love, its lack of peace, its lack of justice. But in advance of that great reversal, In the kingdom. Jesus said, He has taken into Himself the judgment, so that anyone who turns to Him can be forgiven. And so my point is, for Jesus, this ethic of love is the centre. It's the centre of who God is, it's the centre of His own mission. And so I would respond to Hugh McKay by saying, it's probably more accurate to say, Jesus never told us how to treat others without grounding it in the reality of God's love. Because that's what drives the whole thing. Here then is the double lesson. We can't separate the teacher from the Savior. We just can't. I'd go so far as to say, if we focus only on Jesus as teacher and forget his role in being the saviour who died for us and loves us, his teaching will be quite oppressive. If you you take Jesus' teaching seriously but don't think of him as the saviour and you read his sayings, they will condemn you. You'll find yourself so guilted out by them because it's extreme what he asks. On the other hand, if you focus only on the Saviour, Jesus, and don't worry about His teaching, in some ways it's worse, because that would make us a hypocrite. And, and no one comes into, you know, more criticism in the Gospels from Jesus' lips than hypocrites. So we can't separate the Saviour from the Teacher. It's only as we know the Savior's love for us first that his teaching about love won't oppress us, won't crush us. It will inspire us to love as we've been loved. To love as we've been loved. Um, there was a passage uh, in, in this um, service back here, um, back on page 5. Just, just flick back there. I only noticed this. Um, in the the previous uh, service, in the four o'clock service. And this passage here was written by the, uh, sorry, on page five, the the passage 1 John 4, 9 to 11, under assurance of of forgiveness. This was written by the Apostle John, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, but written about 60 years after Jesus. So John's gone through a lot (laughs) since Jesus. But, But John puts in this one paragraph perfectly what I'm trying to say here about we don't, love in order to receive God's love, we, we love because we've received God's love. Here's the Apostle John, ready? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That gets perfectly to the heart of Jesus' thinking about ethics, which you'd expect from an eyewitness and apostle. Years ago, I spoke at a school um, just south of Port Macquarie. And it was a public school, and it was a public assembly at school, but I was asked to mention something about Christianity. So I was very happy to do that. And afterwards, this young lad came up to me. His name was Nick. He was 15. And he said, I'm very interested in this thing you said about God. Um, Do you think God's pleased with me? And I was like, well, um, (laughs) how have you been trying to wrestle through this question? he pulled out of his bag um, an exercise book in which he'd drawn accounting columns to show me his project for working out if God is pleased with him. And he'd drawn accounting columns um, and across the top were the days of the week and down the left-hand column were ethical principles he thought Jesus liked. You know, peace, love, kindness, etc. And then he'd given himself a score out of 10 for every ethical principle for every day of the week for pages and pages and pages and I see some of you smiling I I, I didn't know whether to laugh at the kid or or just cry at the kind of sadness of it this poor little kid worried about his behavior and I said to him "Well, well how do you think you're going just look at your own scores right and he got some sixes and sevens but he was mostly threes and fours he's very honest about himself And actually, if that is our approach, and we're honest with ourselves, we're all condemned. But I had the great privilege of saying to this young man, what I've said to you tonight, that Christianity turns that whole idea up on its head and says, no, 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 God's love is primary. We show mercy because God has shown mercy. We love because God has shown his love for us in Christ. And when you know that love, it doesn't crush you. It's not about getting scores out of 10. It's about the overflow. Anyway, I explained this uh, to Nick. And a tear welled up in his eye and he grabbed his exercise book, went over to the bin that was just there, and he threw the exercise book in the bin. I think it's a lovely picture. And, And I stayed in touch with Nick for nearly two years, I think, Corresponding. It's fantastic to watch this kid from a non-church background who is just trying to puzzle through how you, how you know God, watch him slowly come to deep confidence that the teaching of Jesus isn't there to crush him, but it's to show him how much he is loved and to show love out of that. Friends, that is what the teacher taught. And the teacher is also the saviour. They go together, split them apart, and it's a disaster. So Lord, will you please, in your mercy, help us think clearly about these complex issues. Help us to think honestly about ourselves and about the teaching of Jesus. Lord, um... I pray for everyone in the room that we would have a sense of knowing the love of God because of Jesus.